Amen. If you have a copy of Scripture today, we're in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 18 of Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now, I'm assuming I got to preach a good sermon because I, I was on vacation. So I think that's the expectation that you get back from vacation, you had time to rest, so you got to give a good sermon. So, well, hopefully it's biblical at least, right? Um, who cares about whether it's good or not, but does it follow the scripture? That's what, that's what the point is, and if it does, then it's good. So, Acts chapter 11. This morning, we're looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning of Acts chapter 11. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. It says this, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from the heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, in which we were sent me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit, I remembered... As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I've entitled this message, A Worldwide Vision, Seeing Beyond Ourselves. A Worldwide Vision, Seeing beyond ourselves. There are several things laid out, I believe, in this passage of Scripture that lends itself to that very thought that we are called to have a worldwide vision and see beyond ourselves. The first thing that we notice is a narrow vision 
seeing only themselves. A narrow vision, seeing only themselves. As we pay attention to this text, let's think about what it says. First, we notice that the apostles and brothers in Judea heard something. It says they heard something. What did they hear? They heard that these Gentiles had received the word of God. It would appear that they are not too happy about them receiving the word of God. They're not very excited about it. And when Peter gets to Jerusalem, they criticize Peter. And what do they say? They say to Peter, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now that's an emphatic statement. They're not just simply saying you went and ate with uncircumcised men, but rather they are saying that you or rather they're saying to him they believed you could not be saved unless you were circumcised, and so they're upset, they're angry about it. And notice that narrow vision. And notice that they are, they are circumcised. So they are only thinking of themselves. They're saying to Peter, you went and ate with uncircumcised men. You couldn't be saved unless you were circumcised. And so they're, they're saying, exclaiming in a harsh tone, you went and ate with uncircumcised men. How dare you, Peter? How dare you do that? Why Why would you do that? That's forbidden. You can't do that. Salvation is only for the circumcised. You, how, why would you go eat with these, these lowlifes? Let's break that down for a few moments here this morning. First notice that the church knew about Peter's mission. They have this narrow vision, seeing only themselves, but they knew about Peter's mission. Notice it starts out, with the apostles and the brothers. In other words, all the church had heard about Peter preaching to the Gentiles and noticed what it says about the Gentiles, that they had received the word of God. This is a description of a positive response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This news is bound to travel fast. They didn't have email back then. They didn't have text messaging. They didn't have phones. But this news was unheard of. That a Jew, Peter, would dare to go in and eat with those idolatrous Gentiles. What is even worse is that Peter had baptized these Gentiles without even requiring them to be circumcised. They saw Christianity as an extension of Judaism. So they continued to follow Judaistic practices. So in their minds, Christ had simply added new teachings to their already existing religion. And so if you wanted to receive Christ, you first had to become a Jew, which meant you had to be circumcised, which meant you had to commit yourself to the law of Moses and observe the rituals and the ceremonies of Judaism. And after you became a Jew, you could then receive Christ and be baptized. Then you could be accepted in the church. But Peter didn't do any of that. Instead, he allowed the Gentiles to receive the word without circumcision, and he broke the law of Moses by going in and eating with them. And so as you can imagine, much like today when someone does something out of the ordinary, news traveled quickly. People were shocked. This isn't the normal 
way that we do things. And the church in Jerusalem was being shaken to their foundation because their vision was so narrow. Why? Because they felt that Jesus had come to enlarge only Judaism. And now, what are they going to do? Peter, he has to give an answer for this. Surely, he has to, he has to answer for what he's done. Let me just say the easiest thing for people to do when a godly man does something they don't like or something that is not normal is what? What do you think the easiest thing to do? Criticize it. Criticize it. That's the easiest thing to do. When somebody does something that's not normal, when somebody does something that's, that's not the norm of what we usually do, or if they do something we don't like, the easiest thing to do is criticize what is going on. And that's exactly what they did with Peter. Listen, the criticism of Peter is not coming from outside. You notice that. The criticism of Peter is not coming from outside the walls of the church. It's not people outside going, oh, well, look what Peter did. Nobody's doing that. It's people inside the body of believers, inside the church, criticizing Peter. How dare Peter do something that's not traditional? How dare Peter step outside the box? How dare Peter go against the norm of what we know is to be true? Why would Peter do that? He's going to have to answer for that. So let's look at that. Peter criticized by the church. So we read that the news of what Peter had done had reached Jerusalem before Peter had even got to Jerusalem. And what does it say? They criticized him. That's what the text says. They criticized him. That word means they began to dispute with him. They took an opposite side than the side that Peter was on. And the idea is that they repeatedly stood in opposition to Peter. The idea is that, that they created struggle, strife, discord, and division. But did you notice what the issue is? True, Peter allowed non-Jews to receive the word. True, Peter baptized them. True, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. But the real issue is what? That he went in to the uncircumcised and ate with them. That's the issue. That is the issue that he ate with the uncircumcised. He went against the tradition. This man of God had done something to offend them. And so they're mad and they wanted to be sure that he heard about it. The moment he stepped into town, Peter is going to hear all about this. How dare him go and eat with the uncircumcised people. Listen, church, often we hang out, uh, uh, we, hang, we hang on to our religious rituals and our religious rules and our religious regulations. And unfortunately, we can place those things, our traditions, our rules and our regulations, we can place them before the lives of people. And that's exactly what's happening here in the early church. They're saying, well, these are our traditions. This is what has to happen. And Peter has gone against what we know to be true. And they've elevated their tradition, their rituals and what they like above people. These folks should have been rejoicing. Some people were now saved and brought to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but instead they're filled with contention and bitterness because some religious practice that they held on to was being violated. Our prejudice, our discrimination, our unwritten rules can blind us to the purpose of God and sometimes prevent us from reaching out. 
The church shouldn't seek to exclude people based on prejudice. The mission of the church should be to reach the dirty and the unclean and even the clean. The mission of the church should be to reach the lower and the upper class. The mission of the church should be to to find those that don't know Christ. To seek out and to reach the lost and not be sidetracked by a narrow vision that's only self-seeking and self-gratifying. We can't get stuck in the trap of just doing things the way they've always been done. And when we break the mold and do something different, guess what happens? Criticism. We must remain faithful to the mission. Can I just say this morning, don't be the one to criticize because someone does something different than how you do it or how you want it to be done or how you like it to be done. We can't monopolize the gospel. We can't do that. We can't monopolize it and rarely share it if we don't take it and if we if we do take it and keep it to ourselves never reaching to and inviting people in. We can't shut ourselves off from the rest of the world. We have to refuse to be caught up in a narrow vision, only seeing ourselves and only thinking about, well, what's best for us? We have to refuse to do that. And we have to think, how do we take the gospel beyond our narrow vision? Secondly, we see God's mission for the church is a worldwide mission. God's mission for the church is a worldwide mission. Peter takes time to explain what had happened. We already knew what happened from Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through 48. And Peter is taking the time to walk them through exactly what had happened. Now, I could, of course, just preach the same sermon I preached a few weeks ago, since Peter has just given a recap of that. But I've, I've elected not to do that. Um, sometimes they say, you know, if, if you don't feel the people are getting it, just keep preaching the same sermon over and over again. Well, I'm not going to do that uh, this morning. But what I want us to notice is that Peter is making it clear that God's mission for the church is a worldwide mission. And I I believe sometimes we have difficulty understanding that because we go to church in Washington, Illinois. Not that there's anything wrong with Washington, Illinois. It's a great city, great place to be. But the church of the Lord is not confined to Washington, Illinois. It's not confined to the state of Illinois. And it's not confined to the United States of America. Just like the church was not confined to Jerusalem, nor the Jews. And Peter stresses how God moved, how it was God that was revealing. It was God that was acting, and it was God making his will known to the people. Peter talks about the vision from God. He lists this vision from God. He talks about the sheep descending from heaven. He speaks of the Lord speaking to him. He talks about the sheep going back up into heaven. He speaks of the supernatural thing uh, of the men from Cornelius arriving at just the right time 
wasn't when they were supposed to ride there. He talks about the Holy Spirit's instructing him to go to the Gentiles. He speaks of how the angels had stood before Cornelius and instructed him to send for Peter. He speaks of the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles even before he had finished his message. And then he says, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us. Just like the Holy Spirit fell on us, the Holy Spirit fell on him. And just as the Lord promised. And then in verse 17, God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles just as he gave him to us. Now there are a few things I, I want us to notice that reveal to us God's mission for the church is a worldwide mission. First, Peter was used as a tool to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter was used as a tool to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Listen, we could sit here and say, look what Peter did. He did this and he did that. Look at everything that Peter accomplished. He took the gospel to the Gentiles, but Peter was only a tool in the hands of God. And God was accomplishing his purpose through Peter. And that purpose was that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. And that purpose was initiated by God. And that purpose was controlled by God. And Peter was the instrument that God used to do or use to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. It was God who gave the vision to Peter of the sheet showing him what he had called clean that he's not to call common. It was God who commanded Peter to go with the men who had, uh, who had come from Cornelius. It was God who prepared the house of Cornelius by sending an angel to Cornelius. It was God who sent the Holy Spirit onto the Gentiles. It was God's will for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. It was God's work for it to go to the Gentiles. And it was God who carried the gospel to the Gentiles, to the world, not Peter. God's mission for the church is a worldwide mission. And secondly, we know it is God's mission because God provided witnesses. We read here, as we looked at a few weeks ago, there were six witnesses with Peter. So they can collaborate what happened. They verify that this event was of God. They're there to say, yeah, we were there. We saw exactly what happened. These witnesses were Jewish believers themselves. And so they're standing there. They saw this happen. They were there. They were a part of it. Thirdly, we know that God's mission is worldwide because there is no distinction. Look at verse 12. Peter again makes a statement here in verse 12. And the Spirit told me to go with them making no distinction. In very simple terms, God tells Peter, go with these Gentiles who you consider unclean do not make any distinctions. God's mission is a worldwide mission. And all that Peter just retold was aimed to destroy the Jewish racial prejudice. And now these Gentiles were to be welcomed on equal ground into the family of God. Church, God's mission is a global mission. At this same command is this same command is given to every believer of every generation 
We are not to make any distinction when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an indictment against the church that continues to make distinctions between rich and poor, between race, between social classes and more. We continue as a church to make distinctions that God never gives us the opportunity to make. There's a reason why Luke lends so much space and gives so much time to this event right here. He's going to return to it again in chapter 15. And that is because it is so vital, not only for them in that day, but it's vital for us to grasp today the importance of God's will and God's mission. His will is that you and I would spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his mission is it's a worldwide mission. We must preach the gospel to the whole world. Thirdly, we see the response of the church and of us. We see the response of the church and of us. As we look at verses 16 through 18, I want us to first see the response of Peter, then of the church, and then ultimately, how should we respond? Notice that Peter said, He remembered the word of the Lord. And then look at verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Let's first see the conviction and response of Peter. The response of Peter First of all, for Peter understood first the Lord's promise was fulfilled in the Gentiles because they were being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but Peter was convinced that he could not stand against God. For Peter, the argument was irrefutable. God had moved, and so he had to give baptism to an uncircumcised Gentile. And that was a bold move. But listen, church. To withhold it would be to stand in God's way. And Peter knew that he had nothing to do with the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. And one thing is for sure, no man is going to stop God from doing what he purposes to do. It was God's will that the door of salvation be opened to the Gentiles. And Peter said, I'm not going to stand in God's way. I wonder how often we trick ourselves into thinking we are doing the Lord's work, but in reality we try to stand in the way of what God is doing. So often, especially in our American culture, when talking about salvation, we boil it down to some secret prayer or some ceremony or a certain religion. But did you see what verse 17 says? If then God gave them. The Holy Spirit enters a life only because God God gives it. Only because God gives the Holy Spirit to all who believe. It is not about anything else. It's only because God gives. And so Peter's response is to not stand in God's way, but rather realize that God's mission is worldwide and that his duty is to simply be obedient. And so Peter was obedient. What's the response of the church? The response of the church is eventually that of understanding that God's mission is worldwide. 
Look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And what they do? They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Focus in on that. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has granted repentance. Repentance is a gift from God. The Holy Spirit that comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Both God and the Holy Spirit are actively working to save people that comes through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. God is the only reason we have the privilege of repenting, of actually turning from our sin and to God. God does not expect religion. God does not expect ceremony. God does not expect social class or money or success or knowledge, or the right race, what he expects is repentance. I want to park here for just a few moments because the verse says that they were granted repentance that leads to life. By repentance unto life. I think we are to understand that repentance, which is accompanied by spiritual life in the soul and ensures eternal life to everyone who possesses it. Now, if there is a repentance that leads to life, then it would seem logical that there's a repentance that does not lead to life. Kind of a natural repentance that comes to some through their conscience. But the repentance that we see here is a repentance that leads to life. When it comes, it gives new life to the one who is dead in their trespasses and sins. Let's be clear, there is a false repentance. It is very much possible to hear the proclamation of the word of God. It is very possible to tremble, but never truly repent. Let me give you an example. Paul stood before Felix with change upon his hands. And as he preached of righteousness, temperance, and the judgment to come, it is written this, Felix trembled. Yet he never repented. He never experienced new life. There are many who can't stand the thought of God punishing them and who have even been moved to emotion but have never repented and turned to God. There are many who are like Agrippa, even they are almost persuaded to turn to Christ but have never repented. There are many who think the gospel sounds good but they have never proceeded beyond the almost because they have only almost repented. Those people are almost alive and they're almost saved. They almost have life, but they're still dead. They may have the externals of religion, but they don't have life. That could be you this morning. There was a certain man named Ahab. He coveted the vineyard of his neighbor, Naboth, who would not sell it for a price nor make an exchange. He consulted with his wife Jezebel, who contrived to put Naboth to death and thus secure the vineyard to the king. After Naboth has been put to death and Ahab had taken possession of the vineyard, the servant of the Lord met Ahab and said to him, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? Thus saith the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall the dogs lick your blood, even your own. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will take away your prosperity. We read that Ahab went away and he humbled himself. And the Lord said to Naboth, because, because Ahab humbles himself before me, I 
will not bring evil in his days. And he had granted him some kind of mercy. But we read in the very next chapter that Ahab rebelled. And in a battle in Ramoth Gilead, according to the servant of the Lord, he was killed there. And so the dogs licked his blood in the very vineyard of Naboth. Listen to me this morning. You can humble yourself before God for a time and you can remain slaves to your transgression. You can fear damnation, but you're not afraid of sinning. You're afraid of hell, but you're not afraid of iniquities. You're afraid of being cast into the pit of hell, but you're not afraid to harden your hearts against the commands of God. It's not the state of your soul that is so troubling, but it's hell that is so troubling. And if hell were extinguished and hell were no more, you would sin all the more. Don't be deceived as yourself uh, in, in yourself this morning. Ask yourself, have I repented unto life you can humble yourself for a time and never repent finally it's very possible to confess your sin and never repent it's possible to tell God of your sin and never once realize how terrible of a sinner you are and never hate your sin and never resist your sin and you can confess your faults while never truly repenting remember Judas Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Then he felt great remorse. What did he say? He said, I have sinned. And that I betrayed innocent blood. And he took those 30 pieces of silver. And he threw them in the temple. He could no longer carry the guilt. And he went out and was saved. No. No. He went out and hung himself. He was lost and his soul perished. There's a false repentance and there's a true repentance as well. Repentance is a hatred of sin. It's a turning from sin. It's a redemption and the strength of God to forsake it. Repentance is a hatred of your sin and a forsaking of your sin. It is possible to repent without a huge display of, of, of your, you know, kind of your heart before God and a huge display of emotions. It is possible. Sometimes God slowly brings people in faith. Sometimes he crushes them with a sledgehammer of his wrath to come. There may be different ways of getting there, but the question is, have you gotten there? Don't confuse a, a huge act of emotion with repentance. That could be part of it, but it's not all of it. Some people think there's no way they can repent enough. Can I just tell you this morning, there's no degree of repentance which is necessary to salvation. Sincere repentance saves the soul. The scripture says repent and be saved. Let me also say there is no such thing as perfect repentance. It is a lifelong act. It grows continually sinning and repenting. Sinning and repenting. Sinning and repenting. That makes up the Christian's life. Repentance is a grace from God that he is the one that gives you repentance. So whatever repentance he gives you, praise him for it and expect that it's going to grow in your life. Someone might say, well, well, how do I know if my repentance is truly genuine? Well, that's... Why well, I went over false repentance. And why well, I said what true repentance is. Let me also say that no one ever repents without some sort of sorrow. This sorrow may be more intense or less intense. It depends on the life of the person. But there is sorrow. 
There is sorrow. Doesn't mean you shed tears, though that could be part of it. But unless you hate your sin, recognizing that that sin put Jesus to death. If that doesn't break your heart and bend your knee, how can you possibly be saved? If you want to know if repentance is real, ask yourselves these two questions. Do you currently practice repentance? Do you currently practice it and does it last? There's some people that are sorry for their sin and they immediately sin again. The same thing, the same way as they did before. That's not the practice of true repentance because they've never truly turned from their sin. There are those that return to their sin over and over and over and over and over and over again like a dog to its vomit. This is not lasting repentance. Yes, there are certain sins we struggle with, but true repentance is a lasting repentance. Let me ask you this question this morning. If there are no punishment, if there were no punishment for sin, would you repent? Suppose I said there is no hell and I said you could live without God and suppose there was no reward for righteous living and in fact there was nothing to be gained by righteousness and nothing to be lost by sin. Would you repent? Every sinner hates sin when faced with the, with the reality of hell. Every criminal hates their crime when faced with the reality of punishment. If there was no reason to fear hell, if, if you could sin and never be punished, would you still hate your sin? Would you still desire holiness? Would you still want to live like Christ? If you can say this morning, yes, I would still hate my sin with an everlasting hatred, then I say to you, you know what repentance is, and that kind of repentance is repentance unto life. Repentance, my dear friends, is the gift of God. It's one of those spiritual favors. It ensures eternal life. It is the marvel of divine mercy that has not only provided the way of salvation, but that it only invites men to receive the grace of God. It positively makes men willing to be saved. God punished his own son, Jesus Christ, for our sin. And therein he provides salvation for all his lost children. And God sends his messenger, the Holy Spirit, who cannot fail to summon his children to repentance. And some might respond to that statement, what do you mean God sends his Holy Spirit who cannot fail to summon his children to repentance? Some might respond and say, well, doesn't that go against the will of man? And my answer is no. God makes them willing. He does not do it by force, but by persuasion. And there are those that are unwilling to be saved. And God says to them, I have the power to make you turn to me and I will do it. And the Holy Spirit brings the word to them. And they can't refuse to love Jesus. They are not forced to love him against their will. But God persuades them to change their will. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. It's not the work of man. All oh, the mercy of God that he constrains you and I to come to him and that he keeps you and I until glory. Oh, that he loves you and me with an everlasting love that we can't even fathom or comprehend. Oh, that he draws us to himself by his grace even when you and I were unwilling to go and that he changes our will. What mercy and what grace of God. Oh, what a God. We serve. Repentance 
that leads unto life? What should our response be? How should we respond? Our first response should be unity. We have to refuse to be divided by things like racism, nationalism, sexism, tribalism, or any other ism that you can think about. We must stand against social and cultural snobbery, and we must refuse to criticize simply because we don't like something. Discrimination is offensive to human identity, and it's, bla and it's a blasphemous offense to God who accepts all who repent and believe without discrimination. Our response should be, first of all, unity. Our second response should be a worldwide vision. We should have a worldwide, worldwide vision. The gospel is powerful and it's impartial. The gospel stretches beyond the walls of our church. It stretches beyond the walls of our city, our state, and our country. And that's our responsibility to take the gospel there. It is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. And if we truly believe that, our vision must not be wrapped up in ourselves. And our vision must not be wrapped up in our city, in our state, or even in America. But our vision has to be worldwide that God sent His Son. And it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Thirdly, it speaks to our repentance. If you want faith, remember he gives it. If you want repentance, he gives it. If you want everlasting life, he gives it. You can't work yourself into repentance. It's a gift from God. And he can make you know the weight of your sin and repent. He can cause you to really know the depth of those words on Calvary's cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthini, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He can cause your heart to know the depths of sorrow and cry out, alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for a sinner such as I? Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon that tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of tears can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. If you want repentance, you look to Jesus that he would grant you repentance. So how about it, church? Are you unified? Is our vision worldwide? Have you truly repented? Are you unified? 
Is our vision worldwide? And have you truly repented? Perhaps this morning you would say no to some of those questions. Maybe you'd say I'm not unified with the body. Maybe you'd say this morning my vision is not worldwide. I don't see beyond myself in this area. Or maybe you'd say I've never truly repented. I'm be standing down front. I'd love for you to come and, and, and just say, hey, pastor, I need prayer, whatever it might be. Let me put something on your mind this morning. As you think about, is my vision worldwide? I would say this. If you're not willing to go, your vision is not worldwide. And you say, well, I can't go. And if you're not willing to give so someone can go, your vision is not worldwide. If you're able and you're not willing to go, your vision's not worldwide. You should have a passport and be ready to go wherever he calls you. In July, I'm planning to take a trip to Haiti. And I'm asking for at least one person from our church to say, Pastor, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. That's what I'm asking you for. Our vision has to be worldwide. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to be standing down front. Maybe the Lord's spoken to you this morning. I'd love to pray with you or do whatever, uh, talk with you or, or whatever it might be this morning. If you've never truly repented, I would plead with you this morning that you would have repentance unto life. Let's pray.